Hello and welcome once again to episode 30 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name once again is Dimitri and I'll be your host for this episode. And I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Johnny. Hey everyone. And Spencer. Hey there. Uh, So before we get into our main topic, as usual, it's time for our Indie App Spotlight. So first up is Charty by Rodrigo Arujo which I hope I pronounced correctly, um, which is an absolutely gorgeous chart builder for iOS, uh, which you can use directly from shortcuts or even display widgets on your home screen. Uh, So it allows you to make all sorts of different charts, including uh, super cool ring charts, just like uh, the Apple Watch uh, has. Uh, So you can plug in any data that you want um, and get that chart directly on your home screen, which is super, super cool. Uh, They're all absolutely beautiful and it's all fully customizable. Um, and the app even comes with tons of examples to get you started. So Charty is free to download and costs only $4.99 to unlock all features. So be sure to give it a try and leave a tip to support Rodrigo. Next, we have Cone by Kushagra Ar- Agarwal, an iOS app built around identifying colors in the world around you. So you take a picture and you can start sampling colors in different color spaces and even match them to the infamous Pantone swatches. Uh, So you can save your picked colors into libraries and buckets, which can be shared uh, with others. And the app even comes with a super cool colorblind mode uh, to help those who can't distinguish colors easily identify what they are seeing. So Cone is only $4.99 to download. So be sure to support Kushagra by downloading this very well-designed app. And finally, we have Min by Ben Standard, a macOS web browser with a very minimal user interface. Uh, So Min gets out of your way by taking up less space, giving you more room to browse the web. It will even fade out pages you haven't looked at in a while to help you focus. And since it's built using Electron, you'll likely be able to get away without ever using Chrome either uh, by switching to Min instead. So Min is completely free and it is actually open source. So Ben started the project when they were only 13. Uh, So be sure to give it a try and even consider contributing if you're able to. So if you are an indie developer, we want to hear from you. Please reach out to us on Twitter at CodeCompletion via DN, and we can spotlight your app as well. Uh, So before we get into our main topic, take two, uh, we have a bit of AirTag follow-up, us having uh, more or less received more of them uh, as time goes on. Uh, So Spencer, you just received yours, right? I did, yeah. I I got mine a couple days ago, or... I guess yesterday, actually, now that I think about it. Um, but it's it's given me a chance to test out the features and everything and even like mess around with that debug menu that is just there for some reason still, which is kind <laughs> of interesting. Uh, but it works really well. Something that I noticed uh, just compared to the tiles that I, I've had for the last uh, probably year, year and a half or so, is uh, the speed at which it will... Uh, like in the find my app uh, show you where your things are where in the tile app i would go in and i'd you know be trying to run out the door and i'd inevitably lose my keys and i'd have to open the tile app and it would say hey give me a second i'm finding the keys uh and that was sometimes a you know multiple uh tens of seconds uh, of a process just for it to connect you know wirelessly through bluetooth or whatever it is um and actually say, and let me hit the find button so it can start ringing it. Whereas with the AirTag, it's pretty much instant. So um, my initial literally 
24 hour impressions are that it's great. Um, I'm, I'm super happy with it. The, um, the one thing that is slightly annoying and it's, it's my own fault is the, um, just the way that this is made, the, the key ring is so <laughs> like wide on the key ring that it doesn't really fit well with the rest of my keys or anything. Mm -hmm. But like that is, uh, the biggest <clears throat> complaint that I have at this point. So, um, super excited about it, um, in general. Awesome. Johnny, did you get any slash, are you looking forward to getting some? <clears throat> you know, I, uh, when they were announced, I was, I was super excited about them and then started trying to make a mental list of, you know, if I got the four pack, what would I use them for? Um, I know I lose my wallet, uh, enough that it would probably be good for my wallet. Although it's not super convenient to go on a wallet. I mean, it's not a great size and I don't really want to put a keychain on my wallet. Um, although I did see that somebody found out how to like engineer it into like a card so that they could put it in their wallet. So that could maybe be something I look into. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe, you know, I've got two dogs. It'd be nice to put them on, on my dogs in case they ever run away. Um, <clears throat> but if I understand it correctly, that, that would assume that the dogs run away towards somebody that have somebody that has a device close. Right. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not like it's a GPS tracker. So if mm -hmm. like we're camping or whatnot, the air not tags would, would basically be useless because they wouldn't be able to ping off of anybody's phone. So I, I'm still working on this list in my head of like how I can justify getting four, but no, I've not ordered any yet, but I, I think they're super cool and uh, I look forward to, to getting to use them sometime soon. So just like you, Johnny, we, we primarily got them to stick on our cats, which are mostly indoor cats other than when we like bring them out in our arms and hope that they do not jump uh, from there. Uh, so we, uh, we got them for cats and like you, Spencer, I got that little key ring and a variety of other ones because it was just all for pre-order. There's nothing to really check out or anything. And yeah. I think I'm going to be returning all of the actual accessories uh, that we got um, because they're quite, they make an already large thing much larger. Um, mm -hmm. If you know what I mean? Uh, so uh, for our cats, what we did was we, we sewed together these little kind of briefcase pouches that we have looped around their collars. Uh, and that <laughs> seems to work perfectly. It's, it's not uh, like in their face. Uh, it's not going to dip into the water bowl uh, and like fry the device prematurely. <laughs> Um, and it's going to just allow us, uh, that extra peace of mind. And because thankfully we live smack in the middle of the city. So there's going to be no issue, uh, spotting where, uh, they are probably, or where they have been, uh, more, totally. more likely than anything. Yeah. Um, so that's our, that's our, our base plan or our hope to never use it, but an insurance policy, um, because you can't really stick a GPS tracker on a cat either. They're much smaller than dogs, and those GPS records are quite large. Uh, so that that's not uh, really an option. So we are looking forward to it for that. Um, I got one for my mom's cat as well, uh, which is an outdoor cat, so it's less of a concern there, uh, but in case he doesn't come home and things like that. Um, and we noticed, because my mom does not have an iPhone, I believe it started with the 11, correct? Um, where mm -hmm. you can go ahead and use the U1 chip, uh, so we we realized you cannot use anything close to the 
the proximity sensing where it'll tell you like how many feet away you are or if you're just nearby or not. All you can do is really kind of tell it to make a chime um, right. and hope for the best uh, with the older devices. So if you do not have a brand new phone or a one-year-old phone, uh, consider that when you're getting these, you're not going to be able to use that super cool feature where uh, it will literally play um, like hot and cold. What's that game called? When you say you're getting warmer um, as you get closer and closer to uh, the device. Right. Um I remember seeing, and I think I posted it on our Slack, but there was this video of this guy that he was just curious of, you know, the the part which we haven't really tested or is, is hard to test, which is the actual updating of location, uh, you know, when it's not with you. So he mailed himself an AirTag, mm-hmm. um, and it was super interesting. He, I think he wrote like an Apple script um, app or just, you know, uh, uh, something with, uh, oh, it was using Automator. Um, to basically periodically uh, check the location of um, of that air tag, I think it was like every ten seconds or so. I can't quite mm. remember, or maybe ten minutes. Um, but it it you know it was this. He put it in this mailbox that was maybe a hundred meters away from his house, and it did this humongous loop uh, around multiple cities where his postal service would uh, would go. But what it showed was. Uh, you know that part of if even if you don't have an iphone with the one chip the updating is still a huge feature feature which i think is Mm -hmm. worth very much worth it in in my opinion because that's when you know it playing a sound is great um and you know that's what i had with my tile and it works fine and you eventually find your keys but the more kind of serious issue of completely losing whatever is attached to the air tag um is I think much more of a uh, like mitigated in the sense of the location probably being updated um, much more regularly. Again, if you're in a in a place with with a bunch of iPhones, like some yeah. you know city. So, and you have to appreciate how quick uh, people started complaining about the fact that you can remove the battery and that it's a child safety hazard. And this is like the first time that Apple has made something with a user replaceable battery that's like super simple to get to but not something that's intentional either um and i think i don't remember which country it was but it got recalled i think it was australia or something where they like had to take it off shelves because um the lawmakers were were super angsty about the fact that the battery can be removed um and it's like the first time that apple gets around to that so i i love the irony there um, which uh, but I hope it's never not happened discourage. for. It's no, never it's, happened for tiles or any of the trackers that have come before. No, those it's don't, only when those Apple don't really it, you know matter. Yeah, I think you have to work quite hard to open up a tile. I don't think it's it's something that it's opens not, too easily. Um, I don't know if I have my old one right here. Oh yeah, I do. You have to like get a nickel in there and really separate, right? No, it's like. It's just this one tab, and then you've got it open. Well, oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just as easy, <clears throat> if not easier, because you can just push it open. So there are yeah. some that aren't replaceable, but a lot of them are. So in any case, our main topic for today <laughs> that we <laughs> figured uh, we would dive into, since WWDC is just a one month away, 
uh, we figured we might discuss what we think might come both in terms of hardware, but also in terms of software for users and also in terms of software for developers uh, that we can all uh, go ahead and use. Uh, so does anyone have a prediction they want to go in front of all the other predictions? <clears throat> I mean, I think the biggest topic is just going to be Swift UI, right? I think that's what everybody's waiting for of just the evolution of Swift UI. I mean, mm -hmm. version one to version two just seemed so much better and so much more useful. It seemed like at that point, there were a lot of developers that were like, okay, this is something that like I can actually use. It's not this beta thing. Uh, and so I'm excited to see that transition from, I don't know if we want to call it Swift UI two to Swift UI three. Uh, but I think that it's, it's, gonna get a, it, there's gonna be a lot of attention on it and it's gonna make us more and more excited about swift ui so what aspects yeah. do you think are going to change specifically well uh i don't know if i have any any specifics it just it seemed like last uh yeah last year they they introduced more uh, user interface components that you would see in UIKit. Um, I don't know if we're necessarily like missing like any big things. I mean, I think collection views were mostly replaced by, I mean, you have lists, but then you also have H grids and V grids. Mm -hmm. Um, that, but, but I, you know, so I don't know the, the specifics. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything where I've wanted to be able to use Swift UI recently. I mean, even something as simple as like the activity view controller, uh, you know, for NS activities, you still have to wrap that in a view controller representable. Um, so I think there are a lot of sort of off the cuff things that are pretty common in apps that still require a wrapper. So I would hope mm -hmm. that we get more Swift, like native Swift UI um, views for those, those type of things. Okay. Yeah, I think for me, I would, I would love to see less of having to dip into UIKit uh, if you need to, uh, like that with UI, uh, UI view representable and everything. Um, something that I would love is just, and you know, I guess this is a big ask, but just performance uh, enhancements both within uh, the actual running of the Swift UI code and also like the previews because it just brings my computers to their knees mm -hmm. every time I try to preview anything. And it's, that is even very simple. It, you know, stutters a fair amount and it's just not a fun experience with Xcode itself lagging. So I would love to see, um, some improvements there. Well, I think totally. that's going to be an easy fix. They're just going to come out with an M2 Mac and uh, there, bam, that one works and all the others don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you touched you, <laughs> I think you you touched on that uh last last time you guys talked, but uh I did. Yeah, just I mean, it, you know, watching WWDC, you see them using the the Swift UI previews, but they're in these like teeny tiny apps and it's like, wow, look how snappy <laughs> that is. Yeah. But take an app like LumaFusion or Day 1 where it's just like they're like Mil, almost like a million lines of code to compile previews yeah. almost feel useless like it yeah, almost oh, feels yeah. like i can just run the app on the simulator faster than updating this preview uh it's like so frustrating to know what it's capable of on a smaller project and then to not be able to like to grasp that in 
you know, in a real world project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find myself pulling out the the component that I'm working on into a dummy project just to kind of iterate on it um, as fast as possible. And then you know that the code is well encapsulated at that point because it doesn't rely on anything else. Uh, so then you can bring it back in um, and things hopefully just work. Um, I think the biggest missing piece for SwiftUI um, that I know of is probably going to be uh, instead of encapsulating a lot of the UI kit views and view controllers and things like that, I think we're going to start to see more native components that are mm. like built using SwiftUI and some of that dogfooding happening because a lot of things are kind of impossible to build still um, unless mm-hmm. you do dip into that. Um, and it would be really nice to have something that you could build uh, with the fundamental pieces of SwiftUI uh, directly. Um, and I think that is, that's been missing since day one, really. Like when UIKit came out, you could make a custom view uh, and have at it at that point. Uh, you can rewrite mm-hmm. the entire uh, UI system in OpenGL if you wanted. Um, like all of that was available to you. Uh, via UI view and via NS view. Um, and that is not really there with SwiftUI yet. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing those uh, primitives kind of be more useful uh, to really build anything. Like if you wanted to rebuild a lazy vGrid, that's not possible yet. Like you would right. have to just rely on it. Uh, whereas having something, having the fundamental pieces there that you can rely on and rebuild what Apple gives, I think that is really what proves a UI framework is uh, fully capable. Um, I think that along with layout, because a lot of things from auto layout are still not really practical in SwiftUI. Like if you want to make two sibling views and two different hierarchies, the same shape, uh, that is a nightmare. Whereas with auto layout, you can just say, please make these the same shape. And it will hopefully, assuming you didn't mess up anywhere else, uh, just do that. Um, So I think those two pieces are the like missing bricks to really have a complete story with SwiftUI. So that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Yeah, I think these are all great. Do you think they're going to so, update Combine this year? Because last year everyone was expecting, oh, we're going to get Combine 2 and see where Apple's taking it and crickets. Like yeah. nothing got touched. <laughs> It's it's really interesting to see kind of where they focused on. And I think that a lot of people uh, are using Combine. I know that internally we're using it a little bit. Um, of course, our app is, you know, way, way older than Combine. So it's not everywhere. But um, like I was using it uh, today, just uh, kind of under the hood with uh, Swift UI and, and ha- having uh, a publisher uh, from Notification Center. Like it, it's there. But it is interesting that they haven't really uh, updated it or anything. And I don't know. I, to be fair, I haven't used it enough to know, is this something that really does need like this, you know, this one or two uh, huge feature improvement to really make it more of a viable thing? Uh, for me, I've been able to do everything that I've needed to in a very kind of limited scope. So I don't know if you guys uh, have different opinions on that. I was kind of waiting for it to be updated last year before I even look at it. Like, uh, I very rarely spend a lot of time with the brand new technologies until year two comes around and they they fix a lot of the loose edges. Um, Mm -hmm. And the fact that they did not update it, that kind of made it seem like it might not be updated. 
Um, and that makes me think maybe perhaps they're looking to revamp Foundation as a whole for Swift because Combine is kind of the Swifty way of accessing a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, older data structures um, that are available. So if Foundation is getting an overhaul, then is there really a need for Combine or is Combine going to change drastically along with that? Um, so that's that's what I kind of see because using URL session with Swift, you can imagine how it can be made a lot better, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. But it isn't currently. Um, so it's interesting to see where that's going to go. Yeah, yeah, I haven't, I, you know, I haven't done much with, with combine. I'm, I still, I still feel like my, not my Swift UI knowledge is, is pretty minimal. So I haven't, I haven't needed to use combine for anything. Um, and I don't know if we're ready to change the topic, but one thing that I just thought about with, with dub dub, uh, is if we're going to see the, uh, some more async, uh, you know, the evolution of, of async, I know you guys. I you guys have maybe been following the the documents, or, or I guess the the open source stuff closer than I have. But I know there were some pretty pretty big updates to to writing code asynchronously, um, or I guess writing asynchronous code uh, and sort of those developments. Do you maybe want to touch? Do you know enough about those, Dimitri, to maybe talk about some of those updates that we we may be looking at? Yeah, so there's async await. Um, those are two new keywords that are coming into the language. They're actually available right now. You can enable them um, on the compiler for like uh, Swift packages and stuff like that. Um, basically, what they enable is, or what they get rid of, I should say, is the nested tree of, clo- of uh, completion handlers that you end up with anytime you're dealing with uh, asynchronous code, and it allows you to represent that code as a flat list. So anything, anytime mm-hmm. code has a completion handler, instead, uh, that uh, method will be marked as await, um, and it will return the, the results in that completion handler uh, as a return value, uh, basically. Uh, and the way that works is it allows you to write asynchronous code as if it were synchronous, and the compiler will make sure that you're not creating like loops mm-hmm. around yourself uh, in the process um, and make sure that that's all well accounted for. Um, so that's that's part one of like everything that's happening. Uh, part two is there's a new task API, which allows basically uh, you to not use dispatch queues anymore. Uh, it kind of takes over uh, the handling of um, dispatching uh, work to other threads uh, and stuff like that in a compiler safe way. Um, so that's going, that's, I don't believe is there yet, or it might be, I'm not, I'm not totally sure there. Um, and then we have a completely separate thing, which is the actors, uh, which allows us to have uh, thread-safe code that's guaranteed by the compiler. Um, and that's the really novel thing that um, no other language really has, but uh, neither does Swift at the moment. It's still being developed. Uh, so I think we might end up seeing that for WWDC because it would make for uh, excellent uh, talks on all of those topics. Um, and we, the Apple's engineers will most likely get it done uh, within a month's time. Uh, they're kind of frantically getting through, the, going through the paces at the moment, and they'll have a few more months after WWDC comes around for everything to be finalized anyways. Um, so there's lots of time for that to kind of uh, flush itself out. So I think uh, 
that WWDC is definitely an excellent time for all of that to come come around. I think it's interesting that we have kind of this look because Swift is open source to well, okay, caveat, but because Swift is open source, we can see. I was going to say everything, but that's not really the case. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of how the language is progressing and and you know the progress itself of you know is this close or not, but then. What was it? Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but in I think it was 2018 when they just like, hey, we added a bunch of stuff to Swift and it didn't really go through the normal process. So, you know, that might uh, have been the function builders with Swift UI. Oh, that's probably what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it was Swift UI related. So, you know, uh, I think for the most part, you can see a lot of how the language is progressing, including people at Apple working on it. And that's cool, but maybe not a catch all statement there. <laughs> No, definitely. So uh, I wanted to bring up, uh, I, I was scrolling through Twitter and someone um, show just had like, you know, the, um, the app clip QR code. And I just, that popped into my head and I was like, I literally have not used app clips one time. You mean you're not um, going around the city to your parking meters and getting, <laughs> getting that all set up? <laughs> Well, that's my point. I, and then I asked you guys, I was like, I completely forgot that app clips even existed. Like, I literally, until I saw that tweet, I was like, oh, yeah, that is a thing, I guess. And I just asked you guys, you know, what is your experience with app clips in the last uh, two has, is it, has it two years since they did that? Was that in 2019? I think it came out last year. It was last year. Okay. Yeah. Last year. Still, it's been about a year. I haven't used them once. Uh I mean, have you heard anything? I know the only thing that I think I've seen with app clips was like last year, you know, a month or so past WWDC, I saw uh, Guy Rambo uh, <laughs> making an app clip for one of his apps. And like, that's it. For Chibi Studio, that's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. So like, what do you guys think about app clips? Do you think they'll pick up traction or is it just kind of like this gimmick that uh, no one uses yeah i mean i i think we may have a different well so a you know with COVID, i think that the Mm. the places where we would see them obviously are fewer that's fair um and also i mean the i guess you live closer to salt lake than i do but i think it depends on how like urban of an area you live in um Mm. and how much you it, it sort of seems like the the main use case is like parking right like every every like parking lot may have a different app or system that they use. And so the ability to pay for parking in that parking lot without having to download the app is a really great use case and like a perfect, yeah, like a a perfect thing for app clips beyond that. I don't, you know, beyond parking and maybe like renting out scooters or bikes or whatever to like, it seems like a much more city, like big city type thing to quickly, gain access to those different utilities and whatnot but outside of that i don't i don't know what they're used for i don't know what people would use them for so i'm about to blow both of your minds (coughs) what if you use app clips as a way to demo your app so apple notoriously on the app store does not allow like demos uh before subscriptions yeah or light versions but what better uh, thing to do than to have an app clip that has a limited part of your functionality just available on your website a button away and instantly the user can have your app 
can mm. it just opens and they can go ahead and play around with it whether it's a game you can include a few levels whether it's a productivity app maybe you include a little bit of functionality there and that allows them to try it out before they really commit to downloading the whole multiple megabytes depending on how big your app is um one thing that i've had in the back of my head for almost this entire year uh is to help lynn with her not app to include uh, app clips for that uh, the only problem is that app is so huge because of all the resources and artwork uh, that we need to completely restructure how uh, that works for something like an app clip to work uh, because you are limited to 10 megabytes um, of a download for that. Um, that said, uh, out in the wild, I've encountered app clips precisely uh, once other than what Spencer mentioned with Key Rambo's Chibi Studio. Um, and that was last week, uh, a family member... Uh, sent us a link to TikTok, which I do not have, um, via iMessage, and that link automatically turned into an app clip link. And I was like, oh, oh cool, I'll give this cool. a try. Um, because like it's not actually downloading the app. It's not uh, creating a, a use uh, an account or anything. It would just mm-hmm. allow me to see the video. Um, so I opened that. It opened very quickly. And I was within TikTok. And it's, it is then that I realized... I don't know how to use this thing, and um, I got almost confused trying to swipe the app away because it's like swiping up within the app right near the home button is something completely different. I don't know. I'm too old for this. So uh, I watched the TikTok <laughs> video, and I struggled to get out of the app, uh, but then I felt good because I don't. I didn't actually download the whole thing. I just uh, got an app clip of it. So I thought that was really neat. That's cool. I yeah i mean i i agree that i think a great use case for them is to use them as a demo but i just i i haven't seen it anywhere mm-hmm. i don't know you know it's i think it's cool that tiktok's implemented that i didn't know that um i so, I, I don't know what it is <laughs> if, if you don't have a lot TikTok, of... then ask someone to send you a tiktok link and maybe it will work mm. yeah <laughs> so Another another uh, big thing that could be coming, uh, and it's especially coming out with all the dirty laundry from the past uh, week and a few days of the Epic versus Apple uh, fight in courts right now, um, and that is uh, updates to how Apple handles uh, in-app purchases and the various rules around um, mentioning that you can take external payment and stuff like that. So. I personally think that Apple is long due to kind of set the record straight before someone else sets the record for them, uh, and that they probably want to be opening up uh, in-app purchases, at least in the way of not uh, forcing people to not even mention that they can go to the website or they can't link to the website. So if that is the only change that we see, I think it will be a beneficial one, um, and that is where... Uh, in the app you you can you can now have a link that would open the website in safari and the user can go do what they want there um i think that is a compromise that apple's going to need to take uh before uh, someone tells them that they can't have the app store anymore uh i think that is going to probably fix a ton of uh a ton of um related issues there um as far as what will actually change in the SDK? I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't even know if they'll call out to this. It might just be a silent change to the to the review document. Um, yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I can. <clears throat> I can take a swing. So yes, obviously this 
uh, you know, this is a pretty big issue. Um, and, you know, Epic's not the first one to put up a fuss, but they're definitely putting up the bigger fuss than, than we've seen, uh, you know, taking some drastic measures. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I think there's definitely room uh, to <clears throat> relax things a little bit. I mean, at day one, I've there have been a few times where the app gets rejected just because Apple doesn't like some link that goes to Stripe or whatever, right? Like there's there's just these weird rules um, that, you know, Apple's just doing everything they can to make sure that they get their cut. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think we're due for a little bit of, uh, you know, relaxing those. Um, and whether that's a result of the epic fight or just everybody sort of petitioning, um, I have a hard time rooting for Epic, uh, even though, you know, my, the company I work for, uh, and just me as a developer, we have everything to gain, uh, from Epic winning, but I just, uh, I don't know. Well, Epic, the, Epic seems... doesn't have to win. That's the thing. So Epic yeah. is most likely not going to win this court case because they've right. been disingenuous from the start, but yeah. the judge is asking, for clarification and is also communicating with uh, the antitrust investigations that are happening. Um, so anything that does come out from this is definitely going to become ammo in the antitrust fight regardless. And so far, a lot has come out uh, that is not painting Apple in the best light. Um, so yeah. they can they can get ahead of this or they can keep throwing it under the rug, I guess. And, and that's... That's up to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it just seems very draconian. Uh, there, the review process, those rules around, uh, payments and everything. And like you said, Johnny, like Stripe payments are, are being flagged. I've heard of that before as well. It's, it's just a little baffling to me. And I think one thing that people don't like as well, I personally don't like, um, is the very, um, the very kind of closed off uh, process of the app store review process. Sometimes your app gets rejected. They won't even say why, right? They'll just say, yeah, you need to, you know, fix some stuff. And it gives you a very generic, uh, mm -hmm. you know, probably copy pasted response as to why it, it isn't, uh, it hasn't passed. And it seems to just kind of depend uh, on who you got to review totally. your app. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've changed you know, very little sometimes, if anything, just resubmitted it and it's gone through before. So I, I would love to see more transparency um, in the review process and also just being a little bit more lax with the rules because they're, uh, I think, a little bit excessive where, especially like you guys mentioned, the not being able to even link to where you can, you know, there are some apps that require an account for the functionality, but if you don't have an account, they can't even call out where to get an account or how to pay for it because of those rules. So uh, I think that creates a lot of friction to the user that may enjoy their enjoy that app, but they literally cannot figure out how to use it if they don't Google it themselves, which isn't to say it's a hard thing, but some people just, you know, can't be bothered to do that for whatever reason. They just don't want to or whatever. It's not that big of a deal. So uh, in that in that sense, I think we stand to gain a, a fair amount whether or not they epic wins this but i think this is just another thing to kind of keep snowballing this this issue that mm -hmm. is becoming more and more um 
like out of the developer community and into just kind of common, uh, just everyday talk by by the layperson. So, and Apple is definitely uh, like going against the any developer that wants to do things differently. Like Netflix, for instance, uh, just decided we're not going to take uh, any new subscribers from iOS and we're going to run that experiment. And the court document showed Apple's executive team basically freaking out, um, trying to find a way to keep them on uh, the in-app purchase train. And then ultimately, yeah. uh, they uh, they decided, oh, since uh, Netflix is removing this revenue stream for us, we're going to stop promoting them uh, completely. Uh, and ever since that day, Netflix has not once been featured on the App Store um, and... Uh, that is that is a problem. Um, I, of course, like Apple can do what they want. They've famously said that they're not providing marketing, like for anyone in particular. They're just mm-hmm. doing it as they see fit for uh, selling iPhones, basically. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't. It really puts a sour taste when all of this dirty laundry really kind of gets out. Um, and I think that is the biggest problem. Uh, there was another one where uh, they were re- they were blocking an app from being reviewed, uh, and they didn't have a rule in place to prevent that app from actually entering the store. So they blocked the app and they denied it, and then they added a rule the next day um, yeah. to kind of keep it out. Um, and it's it's that kind of behavior I think that demands scrutiny no matter what, because it's, it's really not fair. And I've mentioned this before. I think it was like probably our first episode. If Apple kind of separated the ability to distribute apps from the review process and the ability to be featured in the app store, say you needed a link to download your app, but like you can get it on the store no matter what it is, as long as it's not like an outright scam, um, I think it's important that Apple retains that control so that way they can block outright outright scams. Um, But they are definitely relying on this human element of the review process to really Mm -hmm. catch everything that technically they can't. A lot of people make the case that, oh, a Mac is perfectly safe. A Mac is safe if you don't download stupid things. If you download stupid things, your Mac is not safe. Uh, and neither is your iOS device. If you download something that has an enterprise certificate, guess what? It can break the sand, the sandbox and do all sorts of nefarious things. The technolo- technological barrier is really not there. Um, and it really is this human element that protects things. So we need to have a human element, but we need to remove a lot of this objection, object, subjective, um, a lot of these subjective uh, feelings of what makes a good app and what should be on the store in a public sense from the distribution part of it. Um, and that will, of course, enable unspeakable apps. Um, and that was a term that came up during the, uh, the <laughs> yeah. court uh, where basically uh, the Epic Store has another, apps, another game store on it called Itch.io. Itch.io? I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, and that store has uh, borderline pornographic content on it. Is it pornographic content that makes it unspeakable? Maybe. Uh, but is it also things that explore uh, ideas and stories that are 
unavailable anywhere else, definitely. Um, and whether it's available only for adults, that's that's a completely separate issue. But it is a, a way for people of marginalized groups to express themselves. Um, and uh, adult material has historically been quite marginalized and quite thrown under the cover by society in a way that no one really wants to mention or bring up. Um, and that's kind of unfortunate. And it really is something that is out there and that needs to be expressed. And by outright blocking it, all you're doing is pushing it to like weirder and weirder corners where it's less and less safe. So if it's out in the open, it can be completely safe. Um, and sure, Apple doesn't need to feature it. It doesn't even need to have in its search results. But to have it available on iOS as a platform, I think it's healthy in the long run. Um, and that's something that's impossible right now. Um, whereas if the the store that you can get stuff featured on is a separate review process than the store to just distribute your app on and you'll take care of all the marketing yourself, I think that's a good delineation to have that allows Apple to maintain all levels of control that they want. And if a company gets big enough to give Apple the bird and kind of do things on their own, so be it. Uh, but Apple has no right to really prevent them from doing legitimate business either. Yeah, I really like the idea of having it be um, basically like YouTube, where it's like an unlisted video, like the video can be hosted on YouTube, you can use all of the technology that YouTube has, it's on their servers, you get, um, you know, I don't know, resolution, uh, choices, speed, whatever. But uh, it's not listed, you can't, you know, search within it. I think that would be like a very healthy way of approaching it where you know that Apple doesn't want to just say, yeah, you can have third-party app stores. So I think that is almost like this nice middle ground where you don't have someone else controlling an app store or having their own app store, but you also um, are sort of, in a way, driving uh, users to that more um, featured side, right? Like, I get that the review process was probably very, very important at the start of the iOS app store. They have this brand new platform they wanted to keep, you know, have some really great apps when there were literally only a thousand or so apps. Uh, but now we, you know, people just want to distribute their apps and, and get them out there. And it's just so ridiculously hard if you don't, you know, uh, yeah. If you make an app that Apple in any way considers unsavory, then it's, you know, it's just kind of a no-go unless you start getting into like the alt store or something. And even that, I don't even think they're accepting third party apps right now. So I think that's a great middle ground personally. And look who joined us. Uh, Fernando, how are you? Hello. Hello. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, what are you guys uh, talking about? So we just finished up tearing Apple a new one with regard to how they should redo the app store. Uh, take 17 on this podcast. Uh, so do you have, uh, any thoughts on how Apple could have the App Store be a better place for uh, us as developers? Oh, a better place for us as developers? Um, I mean, a ton of people have, have said things in, like smarter people than myself have said things that make sense, like upgrading, like paid upgrades, no subscriptions. I have one that's kind of like controversial, uh, at least it got a lot of contro controversy uh, when I tweeted about it. But like, uh, 
a price floor. What do you guys think about mm. that? Well, it, it oh, has so no, a price no floor. More free, 99 cents. No, I'm saying that if you want to be free, be free. But if you want to be paid, let's say $5 is the bottom. Like you can sell for less than $5. Hmm. I, I personally, I think there could be a lot of apps that don't quite fit in the category of it's worth, I don't know. And that's the thing is like, you see, you're like more than willing to pay $60 on a video game, but like, it's so hard to buy a $2 app for yourself. (laughs) I don't know why there's like that weird dichotomy there, but there is. So So what you're saying is that the floor should be $60. No, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be really cool for developers. Yeah. I I think a lot of the pricing is very uh, much a a want to have uh, a ton of customers buy your product. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we see on iOS is something that didn't really exist elsewhere in software up until this point, is that all of a sudden we have a ton of potential customers. And these aren't the same customers that were paying for $20 uh, for mm. a simple piece of software, which is what a simple piece of software used to cost. Um, they would never pay that amount. Um, so I think that it's it's really interesting who decides to price things low and who decides to price things high. Uh, one experiment we did um, with NotFa uh, is uh, to have a tip jar, and we had a small, medium, and uh, large tip, the large tip being $10, more people tip the large tip than anything else. Um, so I don't think everyone is as price conscious as we like to think in terms of developers. Um, there is still a market that will pay $20 for the seemingly simple app. You're just going to have to deal with all the people that are going to complain about it as well that you never really had to listen to because they didn't really exist previously. So I think that's the biggest uh dichotomy yes there is a race to the bottom but that race to the bottom is for the big uh the big group of people that could potentially buy your app and not the small focused customer base uh that um exists like one thing that did come up during uh the trial again uh was epic was complaining that the features that apple did were not very useful to epic because the general person like the general lay person uh, did not really uh, want to be playing Fortnite. Like, people wanted to be playing Fortnite, already were playing Fortnite. Apple wasn't bringing any new customers uh, to mm-hmm. Epic. Um, and they were saying, like, that is one downside of Apple's big reach is they have a big reach of normal people and not necessarily people that are super focused to being your customer. Um, so that is a downside uh, that exists and i think that the the race to the bottom mentality with pricing is a kind of parallel to that um if that makes any sense yeah it makes perfect sense um could could you could any of you see apple opening up the app store like foregoing and like having the, the review process be optional but keeping the payment structure so that all right we'll have like like Nintendo used to do with games, like the seal of approval. And so not a separate app store, but it's like this app has gone through a review process and this app has not. Or like as long as they keep the payments, because I think uh, in the end, I think this is all 
uh, and this is this I have no there's a saying in Spanish I have no evidence but also no doubts that this is about Tim Cook's bottom line Apple has to grow services is the way so apps growing and having to pay us 30% or 15% that's what keeps growth uh, active so would you guys forgo or have an optional review process if they kept the uh, the payment structure like the 30% or the 15% like basically forcing apps to still use Apple as a, a service provider for payments I mean personally yes but that's just me I would agree as both a developer and a customer. Like I, I don't necessarily trust random uh, credit card entries online. Mm-hmm. Um, and anytime I come up to a random new site that I'm not familiar with, I don't necessarily do the homework before just giving up and trying to find it on something I do trust uh, instead. So uh, as much as people like to say that having the credit card uh stuff makes it more open and more trustworthy yeah i think that works for some people but for others i think like forcing people to have both i think would be beneficial to apple because then people are going to still trust in that purchase way more than their credit card as ironic as that is um and i think that's that's just a reality of it Mm -hmm. though it's more beneficial to the developer honestly like yes they might not get the full cut uh, the full 97% that they could have gotten by processing it themselves, they're still getting a customer they probably wouldn't have gotten. So Exactly. Yeah. I definitely <clears throat> definitely agree. I think they should keep, they, you know, it would be best to, to keep Apple's payment processing system, uh, maybe reduce the percentage a little bit. Um, as far as foregoing the app review process, I mean, I know we just talked about how that, that needs to change, but I don't think that it should be an option to bypass it because, I mean, you're, you say you're worried about other payment processing systems, but I would be worried about people putting other malicious stuff in their apps that's not getting caught that would be even worse than like a stolen credit card number, right? Like they have things that are, are digging through your phone and collecting collecting credit card numbers, right? Like I, I would be more concerned if the app store became a, a place where you had sort of verified and unverified. And I guess, I guess if, mm-hmm. if it, you can see, if you can easily see that something yeah. is unverified, but, but not everybody is going to have like the technical prowess to know the difference between something that's verified and not verified. Like take any, you know, my parents, right? My parents are in their 60s. They would have no idea. They could easily be installing an app that's not verified. And if it's an app that can crawl through their phone and steal a bunch of stuff and take away their retirement, like that would be quite concerning to me. I think like a minimal <laughs> amount of review, maybe not review, but just like, I don't know how well they could analyze like see if there is any malicious code that is known about then you know that could be flagged and kind of rejected but other than that open it up a little bit more would be nice well that that's there... actually something that came up is uh again during the trial there's so much stuff i have highly recommend everyone to kind of look into this uh one of the documents showed that apple is running constant analysis during the review process 
both right. online and offline uh, of what the app is doing, what is it phoning home to, what URLs is it accessing, um, do any parts of the app match any other apps that exist uh, from a mm-hmm. binary point of view, from a symbol point of view. Like they're doing quite a lot and they're catching quite a lot um, that we never even see. Like we see the egregious uh, scams from the point of view of like a hundred bucks a week uh, kind right. of thing that people are being charged for coloring books. Um, but we aren't necessarily seeing the other kinds of scams that people are attempting uh, that Apple is catching with these tools. So it's only a matter of time until those tools get better, but it's also a game of whack-a-mole uh, where uh, the scams will become more and more sophisticated. Um, but as as we said before you joined in, Fernando, like the Mac is a supposedly secure platform, but as soon as a layperson starts using it, all of a sudden, you see all these Safari extensions that are installed that have yeah. uh, their tendrils in uh, to every other app that's running via uh, these things that really shouldn't have been allowed, but they entered a password, so everything is there. Um, so, like, the technological barriers aren't really there yet, um, and it, I think this review process is definitely still necessary, uh, even if after the fact is when something gets caught. Uh, that there is something to kind of pull the red lever to put a stop to it, I think is very important. But let's say that I agree. I I don't agree, but let's say we're all in agreement that the review process is necessary. Uh, We'd both be wrong. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Spencer was laughing. (laughs) No one's right. No, but uh, even if I agreed that the review process is necessary and that it helps overall... um, what I feel is a little bit unfair is that Apple is the arbiter of of what's right. And they're like, we will make your app safe. But when something goes wrong, they're like, oh, it's not our fault. Like, we're just trying our best. It's the which American I feel way is unfair. for <laughs> What? It's the American way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's exactly that. Like, it's, it's unfair that you're like, no, yeah, I check everyone upon entry. And then something goes wrong and you're like, well, who's responsible? I don't know. I was just checking people. I can't be everywhere. And that's like, come on. I, I'm literally like everyone is literally paying for that review process, both developers and customers. And so like we, there was an article, I think, that came out of the, uh, the trial, the uh, Bitcoin uh, app. Have you guys uh, heard of it? The Trezor, I think. Trezor. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a like there's a hardware wallet. That's called, I think, Trenzor. Uh, I better, I better check my sources. Um, but, but it basically holds your bitcoins offline. And so, what people were doing, uh, they were keeping their bitcoin safe offline. But a few of them were like, "Well, I wonder if I can like connect it to my iPhone so that I can check uh, how many Ooh. bitcoins I have." Yeah. And the company that builds the hardware wallets doesn't have an app. So they go into the app store, they see an app that has five-star reviews, hundreds of five-star reviews, They everything seems legit, they download it, and they add like obvious an obvious mistake, they input their uh, seed phrase, which is sort of like their password, and boom, their Bitcoin is gone. Yeah. So it's like, in that case, Apple washing their hands and saying, well, uh, there's nothing I can do, I think that's unfair. Like, yeah. you don't get you don't get to be both uh yeah you don't get to reap you have your cake and eat it too that's what i'm trying to say no that that's definitely true yeah so i don't know it's 
it's a complex issue for sure. Definitely. So in terms of other WWDC predictions, uh, anyone have any like pie in the sky ain't going to happen, but wish it were uh, kind of hopes and dreams? Anyone want to go? Because I have, I have one that's sort of like a hope and dream. They've been, they've been keeping Objective-C alive uh, surprisingly much more so than I, than I expected. Like last Objective year, there Swift were a few. Announced. Yeah, no, I have no, <laughs> no desire to move that way. But it's like I wonder if there are more Objective C updates coming this year, because uh, we all know that Swift's the future. But it's like, will they just finally let Objective C ride into the sunset gracefully, like even if it take, takes them five years, or is it like we're still updating Objective C? I think it's going to be a very long process. Uh, for instance, yeah. they recently updated uh, the C language uh, to have uh, like pointers with bounce checks for when they compile their kernel. Um, they didn't need to do that. They could have mm-hmm. uh, just not touched that code forever. Uh, but they did add something like that. And one of my favorite sessions uh, at WWDC is always what's new in LLVM or what's new in LDB. It's going to be a lot of techno jargon if you're not familiar with it. But every now and then, no matter what your experience level, there's going to be a few little neat things that get added uh, that are going to directly impact you in some way. Um, And even if you aren't using the rest of it, um, it's really neat to see how things are progressing and how things are changing under the hood. Um, And that's where a lot of the Objective-C changes, like even every year, basically, uh, do get announced. So... I would highly recommend you keep an eye out for that session. Uh, if, like Fernando, you two are interested in continuing to use Objective C long term. <laughs> what the reason I brought it? I found an article. Uh, I'm going to share it in my newsletter. Hey, subscribe, please. Uh, hey. About this guy who who just wanted to. He learned Objective C, left before Swift was uh, revealed, and then came back last year or 2019, one of those. And he was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep using Objective-C. And he built a whole app using Objective-C. And even though I'm a fan of Objective-C, I was actually shocked and surprised that, wow, you can, yeah, I guess you don't need, like Swift is still opt-in. So like everyone is talking about Swift and everything, but it's still opt-in. You can still build mm-hmm. almost everything except Widgets? Except if you want to use Swift UI, well, Bro. Uh, yeah. nobody wants to use Swift or <laughs> cr- create ML. Those are two uh, very high demand features that are Swift only, <laughs> Fernando. I think you're right, Dimitri. But still, <laughs> I think that's it. I, by I, the found way. It, I don't know any was... other like Swift Swift only uh, frameworks. Even Combine works with Objective C. What really? I believe so. All the publishers um, are hooked up. I may be wrong. That makes sense. That I'm makes sense. I'm looking it up right now. So, so that's what I'm saying. Like it was like it was a shock to me that after five years, and looking back at it, it makes sense. It's just like Swift is opt in. You can just forego Swift and build whatever app you want, except for ML and whatever that other other thing is. 
And to be fair, uh, even with Swift UI, you can have the Swift UI bit be in Swift and the rest right. of your app be in Objective C. I mean, it's not like the storyboard XML file is in Objective C. It's just an XML file. Um, so in your Swift UI user interface, that can just be a Swift file uh, that describes what your UI looks like. Um, and from Objective C, you can go ahead and instantiate it just like everything else because guess what? It's a UI hosted controller something hosting controller something like that um so you can integrate it in any way you want um so i don't i don't see uh apple really pushing people out of objective c and into swift for a very long time especially since again most of their frameworks built using objective c even swift ui internally um it's not it's not written in swift so lots that of that reminds lots of me uh, to... yeah sorry sorry no, go for it. Uh, uh, that reminds me, during Chris Ladner's uh, AMA with Underdog Devs, he mentioned Definitely do check that, that out, by the way. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, whenever we have time to upload it, because we haven't. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> that one should be the first one, Fernando. Yeah, I know. You got this. I know. I'll, 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 get on, I'll be on top of that soon. <laughs> uh, he mentioned that Apple was in, a, in an awkward position after releasing Swift, because they were waiting for ABI stability so that they could start building apps and, and frameworks, whereas uh, regular developers like everyone here were just building things in Swift. So there is, there's, I don't know if right now that's true, but there, there was a point in time where there was more Swift expertise from the app standpoint outside of Apple than inside. So I think you're right. This is going to take a really long time. Something that I, I just thought of was we were talking about JSON serialization uh, a couple of days ago. I don't, I, I don't know if this really counts as like an Objective C language feature, more of just like adding to the Objective C, you know, uh, what what's in Foundation or whatever. But like adding Swift only things like that, where you could use uh, Codable with in Objective C would be cool. That's that's really kind of the only thing that I can really think of from like a. Uh, data type, type standpoint that Swift has. I'm sure there are other ones because, you know, there's always like URL session, NS URL session, but there are just some Swift things that only exist in Swift. And it would be every time that I'm using Objective-C, I'll, or I'll occasionally get something like that where I'm like, oh man, I wish I had mm-hmm. Codable or whatever it would be. So that would be kind of cool. Yeah, so definitely. That's, is that your prediction? Codable for Objective-C? <laughs> just that, that. That's the only thing that they add. I know it's a big ask. I'm sure you can write a shim for that. Like it shouldn't no, be I'm too sure difficult. But why couldn't they do it and just make it easy for everyone? <laughs> Friendship for everyone. Yeah. Um, one of my my things that I I really hope happens, and I've been reminded uh, that AppKit is not really like purely macOS. Uh, it's been rewritten in all sorts of different uh, languages and environments over the years. Uh, it exists on Linux. It exists on Windows. Uh, like iTunes and QuickTime were written with Ooh. Mac Toolbox, which is not even uh, anything modern. Um, but Apple did rebuild their entire stack to run on a variety of different things. Um, now, this is all a prelude to say I really want... 
uh, to be able to run macOS on iPads. And I think it's a little weird that Apple said the new iPad runs on an M1 when the M1 was so marketed as being the Mac chip. They could have called it an A14X if they wanted to. It's essentially the same chip. But they did call it an M1. And I think the reason they did that is because that iPad will be the one that can run macOS, not as opposed to iPadOS, but within iPadOS. Because something that the M1 and A14 in general adds is virtualization support. And something that macOS just added is a virtualized kernel that nothing can use at the moment. So I think there's a lot of blocks that are kind of being set. um, And it's a little silly to uh, dismiss it like entirely uh, when nothing else can use these blocks other than Apple. Um, And I really, really want uh, macOS, at least as an environment, to run on iPad uh, where we will be able to have the full power of what Macs offer, basically doing multiple things at once, not just one app at a time. Um, And split screen is not a replacement for uh, doing multiple things at once. Um, So... Again, this might be something that only enables itself when the iPad is docked. That's totally fine. Like, I'm not looking for uh, for a perfect solution here. But I think Apple enabling this would really enable iPads to do a whole lot more than they currently can. Um, and that's what I'm looking forward to. That would be awesome. Yeah, I would that would that. be super cool. Of course, it would force me to buy a new iPad that I don't currently feel like i need there's there's a lot of like hurdles and apple has famously famously said like no we're we're not doing that but i don't believe them anymore i think the way that you're they say no until they do it (laughs) yeah exactly that that's apple's way so it's like it feels wrong because i'm a dinosaur that's why it feels wrong. <laughs> that's, I think that's it. I, I don't want my iPad to run macOS, especially because I don't have an iPad. So I just want to take the joy out of everyone. <laughs> no, it's... Wow. Wow. <laughs> that, that was like the most boomer thing ever. I don't have it, but no one else can enjoy it. <laughs> I, I agree. It's just, I, I, I definitely... There's a lot of UX that I think is wrong and that Windows tried it and they blew everything up. And that's obviously, it's Microsoft. But yeah. like, what one thing that I keep thinking about constantly is Vista comes out, macOS is like, haha, you're so dumb. You're asking everyone, every app for permission. And here we are with like Big Sur where it's like I can't run an app that I downloaded from the internet and until like it prompts me. And then once I allow it, it's like it wants to access your downloads folder. Yeah, that's fine. It wants to access your home folder. Yeah, that's fine. So it's like that that's why it's called yeah. Big Sur. It's it's Apple putting a sure button on every dialogue that comes up. It's like <laughs> yeah. sure, 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 sure. I, yeah, exactly. So it's the so big my, sure. <laughs> Uh, my point is uh, it's I don't want them to do this the wrong way so if they're gonna do it the wrong way like they did with Big Sur I don't I'd rather them not do it at all 
if they do it right, it's going to be killer. Uh, like like plugging in your iPad and then working on whatever, Xcode, Photoshop, whatever of really powerful apps, that's going to be killer. And then plugging it out and just going to Candy Crush, that's the dream. <laughs> but, uh, but you get it, right? But if they do it wrong, it's going to be Windows all over again. And I would hate that. <coughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think they're going to be merging the UIs as much as uh, Big Sur makes it look like everything is more tech friendly. Yeah. Um, the, like touch screen capabilities may be coming to Macs in the future. Like that could happen, and I don't think it would be a bad thing. Honestly, more and more people are touching their damn screens all the time uh, because it's just a n- normal thing to do every now and then. Like that can't be the primary use of uh of like an os like mac os where there's so such a high density of stuff but to preclude it entirely is a bit silly um so Mm -hmm. i i think the balance that they have in big sur with regard to like the sizes of ui elements is perfect for the occasional like you want to touch something um or you have a pencil in hand and you like get it with your pinky um or you Mm want to just scroll a document while you're using your mouse and keyboard for the most part like the more input methods that are available, I think, is all for the better. So this week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by Not Pho. Tired of eating the same old meals time and time again? Consider Vietnamese food. You might already know pho, but there are a ton of other flavors specific to Vietnamese cuisine that are sadly not well known around the world. This includes everything from sandwiches like banh mi, rice plates like gom tam, and even the deliciously savory crepes, crepes known as banh seo. That's where the app NotFa comes in. It's a free-to-try app dedicated to teaching you more about the wonders behind Vietnamese cuisine, brought to life with colorful and interactive illustrations and animations. Uh, learn how to make many classic Vietnamese flavors at home, but even if you don't cook, you'll know how to order like a pro the next time you visit your local Vietnamese restaurant. New in version 1.1 is the Chef Club, bringing you even more recipes like fried rice, chicken curry, and my personal favorite, chicken beef, uh, for the low cost of $2 a month, with more recipes added regularly. Thanks again to NotFa for sponsoring our show. Search for NotFa, that's N-O-T space P-H-O, on the App Store today to give it a try completely for free. So with all that out of the way, it's time for Compiler Error, my favorite time of the show, uh, to make everyone else angry at life. Let's go ahead and get started. I'm having Great way of putting it. I'm having Balut PTSD. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, oh, not far. Fernando's got to go. And then, oh my god, there's no recipe for balut. I can guarantee you. <laughs> there might be in the future. I, I can't, I can't speak to that. But there's none at the moment. Oh man. <laughs> okay, so we have uh, four statements today, and they're all related to cryptography. Uh, so statement number one. Uh, AES, or the American Encryption Standard, is a suite of symmetric block ciphers that was selected as a part of an open process hosted by the NIST, or NIST, and the U.S. government from 1997 to 2000 to replace DES. Statement number two, a one-time pad is an early but very robust encryption technique, which can be uncrackable so long as the key on the pad is never reused, is truly random, is longer than plain text, and is kept completely secret. Statement number three. Symmetric key algorithms use the same cryptographic keys for both encryption and decryption, 
while asymmetric key algorithms make use of a public key and a private key to encrypt and decrypt information. And statement number four, unlike RSA, which relies on large prime number factorization, elliptic curve cryptography makes use of a given elliptic curve's geometric and algebraic properties, ultimately providing the same level of security as RSA with smaller keys. So, uh, Johnny, since it's been a while since you've been on, why don't you go oh, man, first? that's harsh. You guys have changed. You guys have changed this quite a bit since last time I was here. We used to be talking about like iPad socks and Apple socks, and now we're talking about freaking encryption. Oh man, this is like reading through the statements. Like I, I don't even know if I could define ninety percent of these terms that you're using. So it's going to be like a pure guess. How <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll go with four because that was the most confusing one so must be wrong <laughs> An right excellent choice <laughs> spencer go for it Ooh. all right yeah johnny kind of stole my thunder there i think i would also go with four um aes i've heard of i'm fairly sure i've heard of one-time pads where yeah um kind of changes the position of the numbers but like i don't really know if i don't know like that last thing of it it, it being kept completely secret i, I don't know that uh, i don't maybe i just don't understand it but that seems a little yeah i probably just don't understand it but um symmetric key algorithms sound legit and i agree i think like the elliptic curve cryptography i've never heard of that before um, I guess just to kind of get uh, a spread, I'll go with two. I think I'm going to be wrong again, but we'll go with two. An excellent choice as well. Fernando? Why? How can you lie, Dimitri, with that like straight face? <laughs> An excellent choice. <laughs> so funnily enough, I taught an intro to cryptography course a few years ago. So, Good thing Fernando went last. It, uh, <laughs> it it helps me it helps me know that two is correct. Uh, one time pads Dude. are uncrackable. If they are never reused, they are truly random, they are longer than plain text, and they're kept completely secret. They were actually used in World War World War Two. And I think they're still used for like presidential communications. Uh, they're very difficult to keep secret. They're very difficult to keep to get um, to be used randomly. And once you use one, you have to discard it. So if you reuse it, that breaks the uh, uncrackability. So I think number two is right. Number three is definitely right. Um, symmetric means that it's the same key for both encryption and decryption. Asymmetric, obviously, not the same key, so they can be different. Um, yeah. Uh, one and four are really difficult because I don't know if Dimitri has like a secret. Uh, is that a pun? A secret <laughs> behind <laughs> one of these. <laughs> uh, number four. If you sounds... rot thirteen each of these statements, you get the you get the secret. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number four sounds right. Uh, elliptic curve cryptography is uh, newer than than prime number factorization. I don't know. It definitely provides the same level of security. I don't know if the keys are smaller. I don't know if that's right. And AES, 
I the only thing I know there is that I don't know if AES or DES are separate. I know they were they were selected as part of an open process. I'm gonna go with number one because AES may be uh, a substitute for DES. An excellent choice yeah. as well. I was gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's start with number three, since you all agree that this one should be true, correct? Mm-hmm. No one has any yeah. doubts. Uh, so as Fernando uh, said, symmetric key encryption uh, basically symmetric key encryption basically uses the same key for both encryption and decryption, and asymmetric key uh, encryption uh, will use a public and a private key. Um, and the cool thing about this is you can use the public key to encrypt and the private key to decrypt, or the opposite. You can use the public key to encrypt and the private key to decrypt. Um, and this is basically what enables all sorts of cool things on the internet where two parties don't need to know each other to be able to communicate in a secure way because uh, private and public keys can be uh, public keys can be exchanged uh, while private keys are only known privately. And with that, you can decide on the same symmetric key to then encrypt everything else with. Um, so asymmetric uh, algorithms are notoriously difficult to uh, encrypt and decrypt. And that is an important property because that enables them to not be cracked uh, super easily. Uh, so that's a very important thing. Well, symmetric key algorithms are super fast um, and they basically operate like a one-time pad if you use the right algorithm. Uh, but uh, they um, they uh, rely on the fact that both parties need to know the same key. So you need to get them the key to both parties some way. Uh, but if you do mm-hmm. manage that, then you're kind of golden. Uh, so that one is absolutely true. So good job, uh, Fernando, for uh, summarizing that. Uh, that leads us into number two, uh, <sighs> which uh, a one-time pad is absolutely... Uh, the most secure way of encrypting something. Now, this pad can be an actual piece of paper, uh, which mm-hmm. is in reality is what was used uh, during World War II. A one-time pad was used uh, to configure the Enigma machines uh, by Germany. Um, and that's why the Enigma was so hard to crack, uh, because every day it would have a unique configuration, which was essentially only known to two parties, the broadcaster and the listener. Um, and it was, uh, that was what made the Enigma machine so difficult. If they had kept the same settings and just continued using it, it would have been fairly easy to crack it over time. But because the configuration changed every single day, uh, that made it a brand new cipher. Um, Fernando, it looks However, like you want to add something. Yeah, if I may add something, the only reason, mm-hmm. well, one of the only reasons that the Allies managed to crack the Enigma machines was because humans are going to human... Uh, like Dimitri yeah. said, if they kept changing the pads, uh, it would have been extremely, extremely difficult to crack. But uh, operators got sloppy. Some of them re- started reusing the pads. Uh, they started repeating messages, things like that. And that led to... Yeah, the to weather the, uh, today the is pro- sunny. And they yeah, could guess exactly. that that was the first part of the message. And from there, you got like one or two letters. Um, and yep. if you're lucky by the end of the day, you get some messages. Um so that that was the the fault of the Enigma machine. But uh, I watched a video very recently, and they basically showed that even with modern day computers, you cannot 100% crack it. You still have to run crypto analysis uh, to be able to crack an Enigma machine. 
um, and it relies on the fact that the like English uh, and not not just English human language is very repetitive, um, and it's a for mm-hmm. a poor choice uh, for uh, most of uh, these technologies, uh, which is why we have uh, algorithms like AES uh, to really. Despite the fact that we know that every HTTP message starts with the exact same structure, it's still not something that you can go ahead and crack. Um, like even if you know some of it, which is really yep. really neat. The the attack that you're mentioning is uh, called frequency attack, I believe, where yeah. you're counting up the frequency and the languages tend to have like the is the most common word, a mm-hmm. is the most common letter, and so you you can use that uh, as a as a vector of attack. Yep. Yeah, and it seems like with the Enigma, if you make one change and you get better, better looking frequencies, that was a correct change. So you can just go like one step at another after another and kind of inch your way there. So sorry, Spencer. Uh, let's go on to number four. Uh, so unlike RSA, which relies on large prime number factorization, uh, no one except Fernando knew what elliptic curve cryptography was, and that is basically the replacement for RSA. Um, so as computers got more uh, fancy and more powerful, uh, RSA keys are easier and easier to break unless you have larger and larger keys. Um, and the larger and larger the keys are, the more unwieldy they become because you need to start sending over quite a significant amount of information just to represent the key. Um, so elliptic curve cryptography makes use of basically curves on a graph uh, and finding, uh, based on a point, I believe, which like curve or which uh, parameters to that curve match uh, that point. Um, so you have some private information, some public information. Um, it's way more complicated and way more mathy than that. So it's not easy to uh, explain, um, but uh, it is a legitimate way of uh, doing uh, asymmetric key algorithm, um, asymmetric key cryptography. Uh, and it absolutely has smaller keys than RSA, which is the primary draw. Um, it also does not have the same quantum computer uh, like downsides if we ever end up with real quantum computers. Uh, so we will largely just move over to this and we won't have to uh, give up cryptography uh, forever once we move to quantum computers, which is nice. Interesting. Um, now, one downside of uh, elliptic curve cryptography is if you know... if you uh, come up with a curve that has certain properties, you can kind of make the whole thing fall apart with backdoors. Uh, So there is some concern that some of the curves that the U.S. government recommends have backdoors because the NSA is going to be weird. Um, But uh, the NSA has to use these same curves as well, so they generally don't necessarily want to have curves with backdoors. But... Uh, there are some open source curves as well that you can go ahead and use, and some are widely used. Um, so there are lots of options. You just have to pick a curve, and then you have tons of keys that apply to that curve. And if that curve is no longer good, you can pick another curve, uh, which is quite a nice property of the whole thing. So sorry, Johnny. Uh, and hey, that leaves trivia, us... Before we move on, sorry, if on yeah. trivia, I just can't, can't help myself. I also taught math. Uh, elliptic curves were used uh, by Andrew, I have it right here, Andrew Wiles uh, to solve Fermat's last theorem. So they're very, very new. 
and they're like really amazing and an amazing achievement in uh in the math field and the fact that we're using it for uh for cryptography really really cool very difficult to explain i wouldn't there but <laughs> but they're cool yeah it's 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 not over two dimensions let's put it that way uh <laughs> it's like a fancy multi-dimensional things with uh points and like logarithms and yeah way way above my level of math that i understand uh, so going on to number one, uh, great job, Fernando. Uh, you get to celebrate today uh, because this one is absolutely the compiler error uh, because AES does not stand for American Encryption Standard. Uh, so who knows what DES stands for? It's, it's the three initials from the authors, right? No, it's a Data Encryption Standard. <laughs> it's, it's Mr. Data, Mr. Encryption, and, and Mr. Mr. Standard. standard. Yeah, exactly. So DS used quite small keys. Uh, so everyone kind of wanted an alternative to it. Uh, and AES was to be the hypothetical uh, alternative. Alternative? Um, or like upgrade to it, basically. And it's the advanced encryption standard. So oh. it's a, a, a fairly uh, easy upgrade from data encryption standard. Um, and now, uh, this was actually an open process uh, to pick a new uh, standard that everyone is basically going to use. And quite a few uh, algorithms were submitted um, to be selected. Now, the one that was selected, um, I'm going to get the name wrong. So let me, uh, let me open it up so I can have uh, at least some help with It's the three initials from the dude. Uh, no, uh, it's it goes by the name uh, Raindoll, I think. Oh, um, then no. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a, it. But it was made by two Belgian uh, people, uh, Vincent Ridgman and John Damon. So it's not even related to their oh, names. RSA. That's the that's the one. I'm RSA. About. Yeah, that one's that one's the one that's named after uh, the three people. dudes. Yeah, three yeah. people. Rivest, um, Shamir, and Adelman. Yep. Okay. Yep. And no one <laughs> could use RSA for the longest time because it was patent encumbered. Uh, so there were a bunch Ooh. of other uh, like public key um, exchanges that were being used that were not as great. Um, RSA being the best one up until elliptic elliptic curves. So uh, that's quite cool. Uh, so great job, Fernando. You get to celebrate today. I, Sorry. The only reason Johnny I won't gloat is because. I got I got the answer out of a process of elimination. I actually didn't know that AES wasn't the American encryption standard. So I'll I'll just lay low, uh, get a drink, and uh, enjoy myself. Yeah, tonight. you just you just come swoop in halfway through the podcast, <laughs> take our victories. I see how it is. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and he's out. And he's gone. Oh my god, my five dollar microphone. Come on, guys. So as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes get released. Uh, follow us. Uh, please be sure to join us at CodeCompletion.io slash join the club uh, to join our Quill server where you can ask us questions and get programming help and share cool things uh, and uh, say hi in general. Uh, so once again, I want to give my thanks to Johnny, who is at Johnny D Hicks. That's J O H N N Y D H I C K S on Twitter. Uh, we have Spencer, who is at Spencer C Curtis. That's S P E N C E R 
uh, C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter. And we have Fernando, who is at From Junior to Senior. That's F-R-O-M-J-R-T-O-S-R on Twitter. And my name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Puniel. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. 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 And with that, I must go. My people need me. And by my people, I mean a hot dog that's uh, getting cold.